Well, I want to start up with a little doxa, with a little to God be the glory. As we talked last week about uh, Jesus, uh, this uh, prayer in John 17, you know, we did the first five verses. Well, we didn't finish the first five verses. Uh, the first five verses, as we've tried to uh, sort of outline this, uh, with the first five verses are Jesus praying for himself. And I made the comment that although that's the uh, headline of uh, many Bibles and it's the outline of uh, MacArthur's little outline that I'm sort of using, just the outline, uh, we notice really that Jesus doesn't pray for himself, but he prays for the glory of his Father, and he prays that he would be glorified. And, uh, and he prays uh, uh, for his people, and he prays for those the Father had given him. Just want to open up. Remember we talked about this uh, as you look at your notes, uh, Lesson 32. Does anybody need Lesson 32? You do? Okay. You've got one? So we got Lesson 32. We're in uh, Section 2. As we Jesus prays for Himself, and first of all, He says in verse 1, The hour is come, glorify your Son. And we talked about all this last week, how, how, how Jesus is glorified in the cross, and the, uh, and the, uh, and the importance, and the, uh, of the cross. 32. And, uh, we said one of the reasons that we glorify Jesus Christ is when we adore Him and that in our adoration for Him is elicited as we worship Him and we give Him glory. And I didn't read these verses last week, and I want to read these. I want to open up today by these verses that show the adoration due our Savior, Jesus Christ. The cross gives Him glory, and we see this in heaven. And we see this in the Revelation chapters 4 and 5 as we see uh, believers in heaven, uh, Christians, the church's body today, uh, of today and in the past and in the future. And we see the nation of Israel, those who are saved from, uh, from the Old Testament times. We see this uh, throne room gathering as we're worshiping Christ. Look at, look at these verses with me, 4, 6. Of the Revelation, then I'll read a couple of these. Uh, let's go back to Revelation one five and six. For, sorry, miss that one. But Revelation one five and six, as we see, uh, Jesus prays for Himself and He is glorified in the cross. And we see this uh, Revelation one five, uh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from his sin, from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and His priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And we said the glory was doxa in Greek, and it elicits adoration and worship of Him for what He did for us on the cross. If you'll turn to Revelation 4, as we just sort of open up here, 4 verse 8. 4.8, the revelation, the four living creatures, each having six wings full of eyes around and within, and they don't rest day or night, and they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and it's by your will they exist, and it's by your will they were created. Turn to 5, uh, the Revelation, as we see this picture of future glories as we worship Christ together corporately. Look at 5.9. They, the same group of people, uh, believers, the church, they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you've made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. And I looked in the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are in the sea. And all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. So there's a picture of future glory of us in heaven with Him, worshipping Him. He is receiving the final glory due Him for His work on the cross and for why He came to redeem a people to himself. So we see that, that the doxa, the doxology, the, the, the reason why he's glorified is that we worship him. And our worship leads to uh, obedience, it leads to faithfulness, it leads to humility, it leads to submission, it leads to dependence and trust in him. So we saw that last week. Just want to read those verses. And then we said that the Father is glorified. And we talked about that in great detail as we looked at verse 2. The Father is glorified because the Father has gave authority over all flesh, and the Father gave eternal life to as many as you've given Him. So the Father gave a people unto His Son, Jesus Christ, and His Son came, and His Son died for those people. And we talked about this is not the word is not in here, but that is the very definition of what election is, that God gave his son a people before the foundation of the world. And Jesus Christ came and he died for those people. And all of those people are saved. And that glorifies the father and is a wonder that God would save any of us. It is a work of grace. All of us are undeserved sinners. We don't merit His favor, His goodness. And so it glorifies Him that He would, by His good pleasure of His will, choose a people to be saved and to, and to have relation with Him, the God of creation. That's why we were created, to glorify Him. And He is glorified when we are saved by His grace through the goodness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we talked about that in great detail. We looked at all of the verses in uh, B, verse uh, part A. We looked at all those verses. And so that's where we are. So as we pray, as Jesus prays for Himself, He's glorified. And the Father's glorified. The Son is glorified. And now we're going to look at the essence of eternal life. If I were to ask you... Is that spelled correctly? I hear murmuring. Does that mean not spelling something? Good. Thank you. 
Y'all feel free to correct my spelling. The essence of eternal life. Verse 3, Jesus is praying to the Father in front of the disciples for Himself. And He says, this is the third really reason of this prayer as we've separated this, the essence of eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the essence of eternal life. If I were to ask you what is eternal life, what would you give me an answer? What would you say? Somebody on the street, if you're witnessing to somebody, if you're talking among uh, your brothers in a home group or, or in church or wherever, if I were to ask you what's eternal life, what would you say? Forever and ever. Forever and ever. Eternity past to eternity future. And when we speak of we have eternal life, you would say that we are going to what? We're going to live with Christ forever in glory. And that is true. We're going to live forever. We're not going to die. We're going to have resurrected bodies Those bodies are fit for heaven. They will live forever and they will be immortal and they will be incorruptible. And that's a glorious future that we have. Amen. Hallelujah. That's our hope. Okay. That's eternal life. But that's not how Jesus, that is a definition of it. But Jesus defines it more specifically to his disciples and for our benefits in the present. I tell you that eternal life is not only for the by and by, but it's for the here and now. In eternal life, Jesus says, is this. This is eternal life. You're going to write a definition. Eternal life slash that they may know you. So Jesus says eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God. Now, there's a lot of definitions of knowing Knowing, most of the time Scripture says if you know something, that means you have a certain accumulation of facts. So to know God, first of all, you have to have a certain accumulation of facts in your cerebral cortex. Knowing God, so part one of that, we gotta have a, uh, we have to have a knowledge of facts. Okay? So we know, we know about God, we can read the Scripture, we get all of our knowledge from God, from His Word. Everything that God has revealed to us, He reveals to us in His Word. And so when we read the Word, and you have to read the Word, you have to understand the Word, the Word tells us about us, the Word tells us about Him, and so we know that As Terry talked about today, we know grace. We know that it's an unmerited favor. We know it's a gift from God. And we know about man. We read about man in the pages of the book. And we have a knowledge of who God is and how he describes man. And then we know who God is. We know who Jesus Christ is. We know what faith is. And we know what hope is. So we have a knowledge of facts. That's not what this means. We have to have a knowledge of facts, but that's not what this word means. When Jesus says that eternal life is that they may know you, this word know is very, very specific in the Greek. And the word is 
gnosko. And uh, there's probably a... a uh, uh, the word is in the Greek. It is the word gnosko, and it is a it is a word that we don't have a word for it in the English language. So it does mean a knowledge of facts, but this word means this is a spiritual perception. This is a spiritual intuitiveness. This is a, this is what Jesus said in Luke, uh, believe it was Luke 6, uh, 944. Look at, this is what it means to know God. And he defines it. And this is, this is having spiritual ears, a spiritual perception. This is a work of the Holy Spirit within our minds that takes what we can know about God from His Word and energizes it and gives us understanding of it. Look what Jesus says in 9.43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. This is after He heals a boy. And then, he, But while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, He said to His disciples, His people, let these words sink down into your ears for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, but it was hidden from them so that they didn't perceive it, and they were afraid to ask Him about the saying. So Jesus gives them a hint. Knowing Me, having eternal life is knowing Me. This gnosko, this spiritual perception, this spiritual intuitiveness, this having a spiritual ears to hear. Jesus always said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so what Jesus is talking about is this Holy Spirit taking the words of life and and enlightening the mind, changing the heart, renewing the mind, and breathing life, spiritual life into a soul. So when Jesus said, let this sink into your ears, he was telling his disciples, you have to have a spiritual intuitiveness. You have to have a spiritual perception that's going to come from me at Pentecost, at the Holy Spirit, because they couldn't understand it. And they couldn't perceive it at that time. Jesus told them about it, but, but they couldn't understand it. Their ears were dull, like ours are before we're saved. But when Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit of God breathes life into us, we have a spiritual perception. And that is what it means to know God. And so we, as God's people, as the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds, we can then know God. And it's not just facts, although it does include facts. And so when we know God, we, we now understand His character. And when we spiritually know God, we understand His will. And we understand His way. And we understand, so when we understand His character, what are some things that the Spirit enlightens our minds through the Word? What do we know about God? And that's part of what eternal life is. So what do we know about God's character? He's holy. He's totally separate from sinners, and He is perfectly righteous. We know that. We spiritually are able to understand it because the Holy Spirit has given us understanding. This isn't 
carnal. This isn't fleshly. This doesn't depend upon how smart you are in the intellect. This is a work of the Spirit of God, and it's spiritually discerned. And so we, as the Spirit enlightens our minds, as we read the Word, we understand that God is holy. But not only do we do we literally grasp that, but we understand the responsibility of that, the accountability we have to a holy God. And so He applies what His character, how that applies to us. Yes, sir. Abiding is a function of knowing. Because we know Him, because we've been placed in Christ, we will always, and we're going to get to perseverance here in a bit, but uh, that is part of knowing Him. We know about His character. We know that He set us apart. We know He saved us. And we know that He began a work in us, and He's going to finish the work in us. So we know because of His character, we abide in Him, and He holds on to us. So that's one. Because He's holy, what does that mean for us? We should be holy. And we're not to touch the unclean thing. And we're not to yield our members. And we're to, we're to be faithful to Him and be holy because He hates sin. And we're to hate sin. So that's one thing. There's a thousand things. And she didn't even type my notes this week. <laughs> and I didn't write them in my notes because I was going to talk about this. It's an experiential knowledge. It's head knowledge applied to the heart. It's like wisdom. Wisdom is a couple of things. Wisdom is knowledge. Okay? But it's plus experience. And it's plus obedience. And so experiential knowledge is wisdom gains from God's from knowing the facts about God as we experience them and we understand them and as God applies things in our life to train us and teach us and renew our minds. Exactly. So that's what it means to know God. It's not just head knowledge, but it's spiritual perception based through experience and knowing the character of God. So we know that God is love. That's a theory until God's Spirit impresses that upon us. And then we are, when you read chapter 17 of John, the Holy Spirit enlivens this word so you are overwhelmed by God's love for us. And you see when he prays that we'll be one as he is one, and we're going to be with him in heaven. That's the Holy Spirit bringing facts to spiritual spiritual intuitiveness and perception. And then we see God's love. And because God loves us, we can love our wives as Christ loved. We can love one another, not... As Christ loved us. Remember? He, he changed that in John 13. We talked about that. So we see His character, His holiness, His love. And we see mercy, right? 
What else? I mean, we could go all day on this, but knowing God. So Jesus prays that they may know eternal life is knowing you. And Jesus Christ, it says, whom you have sent. So we must know Jesus Christ. And by knowing Jesus Christ, we have access to God the Father. Right? So we are, see how that works? So eternal life is for the present. And one of the symptoms of knowing God is abundant life. I came that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. It is soul-satisfying life. We understand intuitively that God works in our heart that the things of this world are passing away, and they don't bring any satisfaction. Yes? Yes. Yes. Exactly. God was self-existent. He, he, he is self-generated. I mean, he is, he is not dependent on anything else. That's a part of knowing God, yes. You, I mean, there is no other. No other. No other thing. And when you know that about God... You, what do you learn about yourself? That He's self-existent and self-contained. He don't need us. We are a product of grace. We don't complete Him. He's completing Himself. And that humbles you. And that makes you realize that... what You, you say with the psalmist, what, are, what, are, what is man that you are mindful of Him? Or the Son of Man that you visit Him? For you've made Him a little lower than the angels and crowned Him with glory and honor. And you've made Him have dominion over creation. We understand that God is separate from us. He's self-existent, self-contained. He doesn't need anything from us. Only thing we offer Him is our sin, right? But He 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 decides and He changes us by His grace, and then that results in adoration from His creation. But when you know He's self-existent, as Dwayne said, you understand He didn't need us to begin with. He wasn't lonely for the billions and trillions and quadrillions of years before he 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 uh, created us, and he is self-contained and, and perfectly content in himself without us. But he chose to create a man, and that man can have a relationship with him is beyond our capability to comprehend. And it will be forever because it says in forever we're going to be learning the grace that's in Christ. So even with our capacities restored and our ability to use 100% of our mind, we're still not going to be able to comprehend it. And it's going to take eternity and we're still going to be going, wow. Okay? But knowing God is now, it's abundant And it's from spiritual eyes and ears that have been opened by God's Spirit. And Jesus prays, tells us, this is eternal life that they may know you. And I pray that every day you are becoming more and more aware of who He is and His graciousness. Through all these prayer requests, through Rob's near-death experience, we learn who He is. 
And prayerfully, we'll see his daughter learning who he is as she sees that her dad has been saved from death. We don't know how these things work. We see that Kimberly's sickness will bring David and the girls to complete trust in the Lord. Yes. Am I not saying these things rightly? My, my apologies. But all these things, all these things are for His glory, and they cause us to look back and go, the Lord's working. Yes, ma'am. Twenty-one of us there, we went by and we hugged on uh, her, and everybody looked at us like we had a third eye. And one guy said to Val, what are all these people here? And Val said, these are my friends from church. And they said, what? They didn't comprehend love and all that. So I'm glad you said that. That's what we don't get. Nothing's accident. Nothing's happenstance. All of it is for His glory for our benefit, for our abundant life, and He uses everything. Isn't that amazing? So... That's what it means to have eternal life, knowing God. That's how He works it. That's how He uses it. So, the essence of eternal life. And there's many verses. Uh, uh, just look at the John. One of his favorite words is to know gnosko and its experiential knowledge. But look at what he says in 1 John. The matter of fact, the reason the book of 1 John was written, if you look at 1 John, let's go backwards. 1 John 5.13. The reason he wrote the book is for Gnosko, that you may know that you have eternal life. Look what he says in 1 John 5.13. One of his favorite words is to know. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And then he goes by and lists all the different evidences and reasons how you can know that you are one of God's kids, one of His children. And he goes back, and there's five or six in here, but look at, look at 1 John chapter 2. The, the word kenosko, no, First John 2. By this, First <clears throat> John 2, 3 through 5. By this we know, kenosko, that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, have an intellectual understanding of Him, says, I know Him, 
and doesn't keep His commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we gnosko, that we are in him, because we abide in the light and we love one another. One reason for how we know that we are in him, if we love one another and we keep his commandments. He goes on, if we look at uh, 319, the same word is used. My, uh, uh, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we gnosko, that we are of the truth. We have this experiential knowledge, this is eternal, that we are of the truth. And our hearts are persuaded before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence toward God. So we're, we know that in verse 24. Now, He who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him, and by this we gnosko, that He abides in us by the Spirit that He has given us. So as the Spirit gives us a spiritual perception to have a genuine, intuitive understanding, ears to hear, that we actually know Him. And it goes on and on. 4.2 By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And so there's another way we know that we are of God because we can confess that Jesus is God and He came in the flesh as God. And we, verse 13, 1 John 4, 13. By this we know, this is what Rusty brought up a minute ago, by this we conosco, that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given His Spirit. So without the Spirit we cannot gnosko Him. But once the Spirit is within us and He brings life to our souls, we have this spiritual intuitiveness that we do not have before and the world cannot have. And so we see 5.20, same thing. We know, gnosko, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. And we are in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is true. This is the true God and eternal life. Okay? So that's how this dovetails. Jesus prays that we wouldn't have eternal life, and it's from Gnosko, and it's from knowing Him. And there are many other verses uh, that we could look at, uh, uh, but I won't. And then what He says here, the next thing we see, does everybody understand that? Verse 4. The next thing He says, look what He says, I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, what's the timetable here? And why does Jesus say, I have finished the work you've given me to do? How can he say that? He says, I have finished the work. Has he literally fulfilled the work yet? No, but because God is sovereign and He is over all things, because the salvation of Christ has been foreordained before foundation of the world, Jesus, as God says, I've finished it, it is as it is finished, it has not yet been finished. 
So he says, I have finished the work. The word finished is an amazing word. We see that in verse 4. We see that in 19 when he's hanging on the cross. As he dies, look at 1930. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up. He voluntarily gave up his spirit, is what that literally means. And look at Hebrews 4.3. We're looking at this one word, finished. Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Look at Hebrews 4.30. Same word, same word. It's not 4.30. There aren't 30 verses. 4.3. Duh. For who has believed, for he who, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Talking about a future time when God's people would enter into the rest of heaven and glory, no more struggle with sin, no more struggle with the sin nature. So we see the word finished, and it is a Greek word, and I have it in my notes. Uh, the word is tetelestai, tetelesteu, and uh, we've got it here, T-E-L-E-I-O-O. Telehu, I believe that's how it's pronounced, and it means perfectly completed. There is nothing else that can be added to the cross. And so Jesus says, I've finished it. I'm going to die in a few hours. I'm going to die for the sins of my people. All of the iniquity of my people is going to be laid on me. I'm going to impute my righteousness to them, and their sin is going to be imputed to me. I'm going to clothe them in my righteousness. The, the wrath against my, our sin is going to be thrown on the, on the Son, and God is going to pour out His wrath on the Son. He's going to atone for our sins, propitiate our sins. He's going to buy us from the slave block of sin, redemption. And all of that work is going to be accomplished at the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to have victory over death. And I'm going to have victory over Satan. I'm going to ascend into heaven. And I'm going to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. And one day I'm going to come get my people. And they're going to be with me. That's the gospel. So when he said... In this verse, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work. That's what he's talking about. Telehu. Perfectly completed. And so we understand that it's made perfect and the goal is accomplished. And that goal, before the foundation of the world, that God would give His Son a people, His Son would die for those people, and those people would be saved. And it's finished at the cross. And all those people will come to Him. And all those people will be saved. As we read in verse 2, as you've given Him, that all He should give eternal life to as many as you've given Him. In all the verses we looked at last week, to Lehu, it's finished. Period. Nothing added. Nothing can be taken away. 
Everybody understand that? He said, it's finished. Hadn't yet happened, but in God's mind, it's going to happen. So it is good as happening, although it is several hours away. Hand up, or are you just scratching your head? <laughs> now we see this last part, this wonderful part of prayer. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. And so Jesus prays for the Father to be glorified, the Son to be glorified, and then He says this wonderful thing, with the glory I had with you before time began, right? Before the world was. And so... We understand that Jesus... Remember when the, one, of the, one of the purposes of this book was that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. So Jesus, as He sums up this prayer about Himself in this first section, says, Glorify Me with Yourself with the glory I had with You before the world was pre-existent God, not created God. He came and He added Himself humanity. He tabernacled among men. Emmanuel, God with us. That proves He's God. When He says, I am the Father of one. When you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. When He talks about the words that the Father gives Him, I give to you. He's speaking about the relationship of the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the, the pre-existent eternal relationship that the Son has with the Father. So that's his prayer for the glorification of the Godhead that they've always had before time began and will always have. Yes? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <clears throat> the word also means, when it says the glory I had with you, that word also means it's doxa, and, and it elicits the adoration and worship and reverence, like I said. But remember, it also talks about brilliance, and it also references the Shekinah glory. When Jesus transfigured himself and he unveiled his human flesh and there was a bright, blinding light that represented the perfect holiness and power of God. He's discussing, I think he's talking about that brilliance he's always had with the Father. Yeah, but he, did, but he created the angels too. But yeah, so the angels... Worshipped him, and we don't know when the angels were created, how long they've been created. Uh, we don't know that, but uh, so that's a good question. With the glory, I, who was he's always been worshipped. He always will be worshipped because of his brilliance and his moral perfection and who he is 
but that's a really good question. The only thing we know of is that uh, sometime angels worshipped him. Angels always will worship him. But I think that really refers to his... His, uh, his, his perfection and His brilliance, that bright light of Shekinah glory? It's a good question, though. And I don't think anybody knows the answer to it. I certainly don't. Anybody co- comments about that one? So He prays for Himself. Let me just read. Let's look at Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God, who at various times and various places and ways spoke in time time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's become so much better than the angels as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." Verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and in the heavens are made by your hands. They will perish, but you'll remain. They'll grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll fold them up, and they'll be changed. But you're the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth? for those who will inherit salvation. That's us. So we understand this prayer is answered finally. It is for our benefit. It is for His glory. And hopefully it will encourage you now. He opens the section 2 about his this prayer. And this prayer is for whom? Starting in verse 6, he redirects his prayer. Can you imagine hearing this prayer? Hearing God pray for you? Hearing their Savior pray for you? For them? So he now is going to pray for his disciples. And we're talking to disciples who were there with him. And we're talking about 11 individuals whom he has chosen, whom have been with him for three and a half years, three years. Judas Iscariot is not there. He's a son of perdition. He uh, was reprobate. He denied. He sold Jesus out according to the Scripture. So there's 11 apostles, 11 disciples that hear this prayer. Now let's read this. Verse 6, Jesus is praying. I have revealed your name to the men you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, the words, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them, period. 
I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Set them apart by your truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word sanctifies them. If you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by my word, the truth. So did you see this prayer for the disciples? I just can't imagine this. He prays. And so first of all, he says, as we look at this, and now we're on lesson 33, that word, I have manifested my name. That word manifested, does your version say revealed? Does any other, any other translations for I have manifested my name? Any, pardon me? Manifested, revealed. That word revealed, the closest analogy I can think of is I am going to open up the curtain and you're going to see what's behind the curtain. I have revealed your name to my disciples. I have opened up the curtain. I have literally revealed to them these eternal life truths that only are spiritually perceived. I have revealed to them. I have opened up the curtain to them, to the men whom you've given me. He's revealed it. He's opened up the curtain. And what has He revealed? He's revealed what? He's revealed your Name. Now, in the Scripture, what is meant by Jesus has opened up the curtain to your name? What does that mean? In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God revealed Himself differently, and He revealed Himself to Moses. He said, I am that I am, the self-existent one, the self-contained one. I am that I am. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He reveals Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does I have revealed, opened up the curtain to my disciples, your name? What has He revealed to His disciples? Your name. What is that? And I'll give you a hint. It's the same thing we talked about in Gnosko, eternal life. 
When he says, I've revealed your name, what does he mean by that? He reveals the same thing Gnosko is. He's revealed the character of God. He's revealed the will of God. He's revealed the purposes of God. And so we can now get a glimpse of God. And Jesus has revealed that to us. And I'll talk about the means in a second. I have opened up the curtain to my disciples, your name, who God is. There's a great book, and I recommend you read it, Knowing God by J.I. Packard. And it, and it describes in great detail what knowing God means. And it means to know His character, His love, His mercy, His gentleness, His holiness, His justice. All these things we can know about God are revealed to us in His Word. So Jesus says, I have revealed to your disciples your name. And we've talked about that, so we don't have to talk about it. To whom? He reveals, who does He reveal the name to? To the men whom you've given me. He's revealed to the disciples. The disciples were the fathers. The Father gave to the Son. He says, they were yours. You gave them to me. Isn't that amazing? And so, when we read about Him praying for us, it says, they are mine, they were yours, and now they're ours. So we're all the same group, aren't we? We've all been given to the Son, by the Father. And we have all been revealed the character of God, and now we have eternal life. So God is praying for His disciples, and He tells His disciples that you have been revealed who God is. I am the express image of God. I am in flesh everything that God is. And so you as men have to understand me, because I came to earth and I dwelt among you. And although God is a spirit, now you see who God is by my manifestation of him. Fullness of God is in me. And he says, I have revealed to the disciples all you are in his humanity. How he acted. Remember his, his if you just remember, you remember James and John, you know, they were so indignant by others that were, weren't following the right way. And look what they said. Shall we call down lightning from the sky and strike these people down? What did Jesus say? You don't know what spirit you're of. And so we see the love and character of God as opposed to the natural reaction of humanity. Aren't you glad God is merciful and didn't say, yeah, call down lightning? He didn't. So we see the character of God, the will of God. He came to die for a people. We see the purposes of God, and we've talked about this. He revealed that to His disciples. Everybody understands that's pretty easy? All of these, all of these doctrines dovetail, and you can't separate them. We've talked about this. He should give eternal life to as many. All of these are talked about by... Other apostles, other disciples. Terry's just talked about you, but when he's talked about this, 
And he says, to the men you've given me, they were yours, you gave them to me. We refer back to Romans. We know what Romans says. This is a favorite of ours. But Romans 8, we know all things work together for good to who? To To those who love God. To those who are what? The, the called according to His purpose for them whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among the brethren. And then those who predestined, He called, He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He also glorified. Finished in the mind of God, although we have not yet been glorified, it is a finished work, and it will happen. Okay, so Jesus is saying, Father, though you gave me, I've died for. They know who you are. They were yours. You gave them to me. So we understand that. Look at Second Thessalonians. I didn't read this last week. One of my favorite verses. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. Paul, talking to the church at Thessalonica, says, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We are bound, we are obligated to give thanks to God always for you, brothers. You're beloved by God, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for what? For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, stand fast, hold the traditions which you were taught. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, who's loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. So we see that He's revealed Himself to us. Now, how does He do this? What is the means by which He has revealed Himself to us? Very simple. Very simple. The means He's used to unveil the curtain that will know the name of God and know who He is, simply in verse 6, they have kept your word. Verse 8, I've given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. Those are the words. So the means he uses today is the same means he's always used. Words, the Scripture, the Scriptures that are illuminated and sent forth by the Holy Spirit. And so we reveal, we understand Him by the words, by the knowledge we accumulate as the Holy Spirit then brings life to those words and changes us by those words. So the means is always been the words. And notice what I have in here. I have the capital word, which is Christ, and His words. Sometimes they are indistinguishable, but Christ is a person. His words are life, and His words come from Him. So the means is He Himself, the Word, and the words which He gave them, which come from the Father, right? They are unified in their purpose. So we see the means is the words. 
All of the scripture in point two is inspired by the Godhead, is given to reveal to us who He is. And everybody knows Second Timothy 3.19. If you don't know that verse, I bet you do. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it transforms our minds. Everybody know this verse, Romans 12, 2? Y'all are quoting it. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. And the renewing of our minds is by the Word. Right? So we see that. And it's powerful and it convicts us. Hebrews 4.12, I know you know this verse. But these are the words that reveal God. Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the division between the soul and spirit and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creatures hidden from its light. All things are open and naked to the eyes of Him who must we must give account. So we see the words are the means that reveal to us the nature of who God is. And then in verse 17, which we're not going to get to today, it says, Set apart your people. Make your holy ones holy by the truth. Your word is the truth. So if you want to become more and more holy, practically holy, not positionally, if you want to become more practically holy, the means is always going to be the Word. No other way, no other way. A few minutes, I want to close this with this. Uh, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Now, some have taken this out of context and have made a mess of this. In this context, Jesus is praying to His disciples specifically. He says, I pray for them. I don't pray for the world. Some have said that that Jesus doesn't pray for lost people. He doesn't care about the lost people. He only cares about His elect. That is not true. He tells us to pray for our enemies. He tells us to pray for those who despise us and and misuse us and mistreat us. He he prays for Jerusalem. He prays that the the, uh, husbandman will send laborers into the field. He cares for souls. But in this context, he's praying for the disciples exclusively at this point in time. I've heard people say all these bad things, wrong things. He's praying for His disciples at this time, and He's not praying for anybody else. And then later on, He's going to pray for all of us who will come to faith in Him through the gospel, right? But that does not mean, if you don't hear anything, it does not mean that God doesn't love people and care for people. He doesn't take pleasure. Yes? Absolutely. That's right. That's right. We see in heaven, what are the foundation stones of heaven? The apostles. 
So they are charged with spreading of the gospel. They are apostles. They set up the church. They're the ones that have seen Jesus. He's praying for them. Specifically. And we see that that's answered. And all of us have come to faith in Christ through their obedience as God has used them. So he's prayed specifically for them. Does not mean that he doesn't care or love or pray for others or that we shouldn't care or love or pray for others or have a heart for people. I cringe when I see bad interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to finish there. I'm going to finish up the rest of the prayer for us, for our perseverance, uh, what he doesn't pray for, what he does pray for. And then we will get, uh, probably won't, we'll, we'll finish through uh, 19 next time, so bring this with you. And uh, I've just got a really rough outline here, because I knew I wouldn't get to it. But we'll uh, get more specific next week as we uh, work through this. Thank you for coming. Hope you're encouraged.